Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. I was not here last week, as, as you probably know. I was at my daughter Rachel's law school graduation in Houston. Uh, so, uh, well, I heard that our guest speaker, Aaron Mendez, did an amazing job. Um, uh, had a very anointed message. I'm waiting to hear. I'm looking forward to hearing from soon. And then when it gets up, uh, a message on, I'm told, on, on Shavuot, and the Holy Spirit and revival. Uh, but and since I couldn't be here, I wanted to kind of give a little sequel uh, this week as well. Uh, on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So well, maybe this is Shavuot part two. <laughs> and I want to start with a passage that actually does not take place at Shavuot, but a t- passage that took place at, at the Feast of Sukkot. Uh, because in this famous passage, Yeshua talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit, which is the whole theme of Shavuot. So turn with me to uh, Yochanan, the Gospel of John, uh, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 37. Uh, and we have it on the overhead as well. John seven thirty-seven. On that last and greatest day of the festival, this is the Feast of Sukkot, uh, Yeshua stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone who's thirsty comes to me, uh, come to me and uh, I'm sorry, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, from his belly will flow rivers of Mayim Chaim, of, of living water. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him would later receive. Because up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Yeshua had not yet been glorified. So note that John here goes out of his way to tell us at this point in time in Yeshua's ministry, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, had not yet been given. And, and based on this passage, many believers assume that prior to Shavuot, prior to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, uh, the, all the, uh, the Jewish saints of old, uh, they did not have the Holy Spirit. But the scriptures clearly testify that the, our patriarchs of old, Israel's kings and prophets and priests, had the Holy Spirit. God poured out his Spirit, for example, on, on Bezalel uh, to make the tabernacle, the Mishkan. He poured out his Spirit on Moses and spoke to him face to face. King David even cries out to the Lord when he, after he sins, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me assuming that he had the Holy Spirit. So what does John mean, John 7.39 mean, when it says that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given? Obviously, this doesn't mean that the Spirit was not yet active in the world, uh, in people's lives. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't moving in Israel. For he clearly was, long before this outpouring in Acts chapter 2. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, we see the Spirit of the Lord moving and active throughout Israel's history. Uh, the Tzach's frequent reference to the Spirit of the Lord or the Spirit of God is equivalent, uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, equivalent to the Holy Spirit. In fact, we see, for example, the Spirit of God moving upon the waters, right, in the opening verses of the book of Genesis. Uh, it's through His Spirit that God uh, interacts, with, uh, humani- interacts with us, interacts with humanity. The prophets spoke through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The psalmists wrote the psalms uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord filled the men who built the tabernacle. The Spirit rushed upon the kings of Israel at the time of their coronation, at the time of their anointing. 
the Spirit, we're told in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that the Spirit filled the tabernacle, filled the temple, and this was hundreds and thousands of years before the time of Yeshua. In the New Testament itself, long before Acts chapter 2, we read that Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, the parents of, of Yochanan, John the Baptist, and, and Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, they all prophesied in the Spirit. So what does John mean when he writes in John 7 that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given? Well, the rabbis had a special, a special term for the, 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 what, the uh, holy dwelling presence of God's Spirit, uh, called the Shekhinah. We'll put this on the overhead. Uh, the Shekhinah, uh, or, the, or sometimes we say the word Shekhinah, or Shekhinah glory in the Hebrew, it's Shekhinah. It's from the verb Shekhan, meaning to dwell. Uh, same root, we get the word Mishkan from, the, the tabernacle. So all these words are related in Hebrew. Uh, there is no exact equivalent in the Greek, so the writers of the New Testament simply use the term pneuma hagios for Holy Spirit. Uh, so the term Holy Spirit is equivalent in, to the Hebrew term Shekhinah. Uh, now when John says the Holy Spirit had not yet been given, he doesn't mean the Spirit of God, as I said, was not active in Israel or in the Jewish people or in individual Jews. Instead, what John seems to be referring to are at least, at least two eschatological promises we put on the overhead uh, that we find in, in the prophets. Number one, the return of the Shekhinah, the return of God's Spirit to his temple. And number two, the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh, as prophesied in the book of Yoel and Joel. Uh, so when John says the Spirit had not yet been given, he seems to be looking at these prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures, saying, number one, the Shekhinah, God's dwelling presence, uh, it had left the temple at the time of, of the exile to Babylon, when the first temple was destroyed, and it had not yet returned all this time. And number two, the Spirit had not yet been poured out on all flesh, uh, or at least on all the believers, as you would beginning in Acts chapter 2, with the immersion, with the baptism in the Holy Spirit uh, at Shavuot, at Pentecost. So I want to look at these two aspects of the giving of the Holy Spirit. Number one, the return of the Shekinah, or the Shekinah. Uh, again, when John says the Spirit had not yet been given, he can't mean the Spirit wasn't present, wasn't active in Israel, Instead, he seems to be referring to these promises, including the return of the Shekhinah, uh, God's holy, glorious, visible presence, especially seen in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, and in the first temple, the Beit HaMikdash. Now, according to tradition, and Scripture backs this up, the Shekhinah, the dwelling presence of God, never actually rested in the second temple, uh, as he had clearly in the first temple. But in his prophecies about the temple, the prophet Ezekiel uh, foresees the return of the dwelling presence of God as a hallmark of the coming messianic era. One of the big signs of the return of the Messiah is that the temple is going to be rebuilt, and God's Spirit will return and will fill the temple once again. And this is one of the things the prophets anticipate. So when John says the Spirit had not yet been given, He's alluding in part to the promise of the return of the Spirit, the dwelling presence of God that would fill his temple as he once filled the tabernacle and as he once filled Solomon's temple. The Holy Spirit, he, he fell on the disciples as they gathered in Shavuot and Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, it says that the Holy Spirit filled the whole house where they were sitting. And so people ask, well, what house was this where they were sitting when, when the Holy Spirit fell? Most Messianic scholars believe they were actually meeting in the temple. 
uh, in Solomon's Colonnade, which later became their regular gathering place. And interestingly, Solomon's Colonnade is the part of the temple that's accessed by the eastern gate, the gate that faces the Mount of Olives, uh, where Messiah will return. Uh, And there are several items of evidence that support this. Number one, the Jews were commanded to gather at the temple on Shavuot, on Pentecost. Secondly, that's where Peter's preaching to all the assembled thousands of Jews there from every nation in Acts chapter 2. Third, there were all these hundreds and hundreds of mitvahot, baptismal pools, all around the temple for those 3,000 who were saved on that day to be baptized, to be immersed. And number four, Acts 2, verse 2, refers to, quote, the house where they were sitting. Well, the temple is called the Beit HaMikdash, the house of the sanctuary. So the reference to house can easily be a shorthand reference to the temple. And indeed, we see this in the scriptures. So, for example, in Yehezkel, Ezekiel 43, verse 4, uh, it says, uh, this is where Ezekiel sees his vision of the Shekinah, the Shekinah, returning to the temple. He says, the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the eastern gate, the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up, brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Note, the temple here is referred to in Hebrew simply as the house. Though also the glory of the Lord, the Spirit of, of God, enters from the east, from the Mount of Olives, from Solomon's colonnade, where the original first century Messianic Jewish believers were meeting in the book of Acts. Indeed, Ezekiel 43 corresponds exactly to Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit rushed upon the believers who were sitting in the temple by the eastern gate. So we read this in Acts 2, verse 2. A sound like a rushing wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Just as in Ezekiel 43, the glory of the Lord entered the temple from the east, from the gate facing east, and filled the whole house. Parallel passages here. And at the the decisive moment in Acts 2, at Shavuot, the disciples themselves collectively became the temple of the Holy Spirit. A holy temple in the Lord. A dwelling place for God's Spirit. They became a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up sacrifices of praise to the Lord, having God's word now written upon their hearts. And God says through Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, uh, 26, I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So So when John says the spirit had not yet been given, I believe he's alluding, in part, to this messianic era prophecy of the return of the dwelling presence of God, which has now been fulfilled in part by the outpouring of the Spirit upon the disciples, making us collectively now the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, we read this in the Scriptures. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? 2 Corinthians 6, 16. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has has said, I will dwell among them and walk with them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. He's quoting here from from Leviticus. Second, when John says the Spirit had not yet been given, 
He doesn't mean, again, the Spirit wasn't active in Israel, but he means in part that the Spirit had not yet been poured out on all flesh, as prophesied by Joel and as quoted by Peter in Acts 2. Until now, we see the Spirit being poured out in limited parts upon Israel's uh, kings and priests and prophets, but clearly not on all flesh. When the Jews in Acts 2 hear the disciples speaking in tongues, they ask, are you drunk? (laughs) What does Peter say? Look at Acts 2, verse 15. These people are not drunk, as as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Yoel, Joel. In the last days, in the Acharit Yamin, God says, I'll pour out my spirit upon all people, all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days, in those days. So the outpouring of the spirit prophesied by Joel and fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 is, is the messianic revelation that God's, of God promised of the coming of his kingdom. Uh, So, for example, in Jeremiah 31, 34, the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom is what? That they will all know me, says the Lord. Paralleling Joel 2, 28, the Lord says, I'll pour out my spirit upon everybody, upon all people, all flesh, so they all will know me. So this this messianic era endowment and endowment of the Holy Spirit will not only reveal the knowledge of God, but it will transform all humanity. It will quench our rebellious hearts, and our sin natures, and it will inspire us and empower us to obey the Lord. Just like Ezekiel says, Ezekiel 36, 27, I'll put my spirit in you, and I'll move you to follow my decrees and to keep my laws. So when John says, as yet the spirit had not yet been given, I believe he's alluding to these messianic promises. And John says the spirit had not yet been given. Why? Because Yeshua had not yet been glorified. He had not yet been resurrected uh, and ascended back to his throne in heaven. And right now, his glory is still somewhat concealed until he returns and establishes his kingdom from Jerusalem, at which time the fullness of his glory will be revealed and manifest and displayed. So after Yeshua's resurrection and ascension, beginning at Shavuot, Acts chapter 2, a portion of his spirit was given to the disciples, to you. To me, this portion is a deposit against the full outpouring to be revealed upon his return and fulfillment of the rest of Joel 2 uh, and Jeremiah 31 uh, and Ezekiel 36. Now, if the Holy Spirit uh, was already at least somewhat active in Israel prior to the book of Acts, what then is so special about what happened in in, in Acts chapter 2? Well, we've seen the, the return of the Shekinah, the, God's presence to establish the corporate body of believers, uh, the pouring out of his spirit upon all believers. So I'm going to look at these two things further, these two unique aspects. And as we've seen, a portion of the spirit had previously rested upon the prophets of Israel in the Tanakh. And indeed, our rabbis say that the Holy Spirit rested upon our prophets only by measure, only in part, only according to each prophet's allotment. But John 3.34 says that Yeshua had the fullness of the Spirit, without measure. So John 3.34, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So each prophet received just a measure of the Holy Spirit, but Yeshua, being God, had the Spirit without measure. Indeed, we read this in Matthew 3.16. 
as soon as Yeshua was baptized, was immersed, he went up out of the water. At that moment, the heavens were opened, uh, and John saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting upon Yeshua. And a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So here we see all three persons of the Godhead together all at once. We can see the Father uh, giving Yeshua uh, the Spirit uh, without measure. Now, when the New Testament uses this term, Holy Spirit, or Spirit of God, or Spirit of the Lord, or Spirit of Messiah, these are all interchangeable terms. Again, pointing to Yeshua's deity and his equivalence with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord rested upon Messiah in his fullness. Now at Shavuot, the Spirit of the Lord had rested upon Yeshua and empowered him to perform miracles. The same Spirit now rests upon the disciples, but only by measure, not yet in its fullness. And this infilling, this immersion in, in this, this baptism in the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, it indicates and testified to the validity of the disciples' message. The message of the gospel, of the forgiveness of sins, of eternal life in Yeshua the Messiah, that the kingdom of God is now at hand. And we read this in Acts 2.14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 a.m., No, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So this indicates in some ways that this must now be the beginning of the last days, since the spirit is now being poured out on all flesh, not just on the kings and the priests and the prophets, but now upon all the believers. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit indicates that the message of the gospel, that the kingdom is at hand, is validated. Now, we've asked, what did John mean when he said the Spirit had not yet been given? We looked at these two answers so far. The Shekinah, the Shekinah, had not yet returned before Acts chapter 2. For the return of the Shekinah is a hallmark of the Messianic era. And number two, the Spirit had not yet been poured out on all flesh, as prophesied by Joel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Now, these are really aspects, different aspects of the same answer because they both point to the advent of the Messianic era. So when John says the Spirit had not yet been given, that's simply another way of saying the Messianic era had not yet fully arrived. And therefore the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Shavuot in Acts 2 is not the original debut of the Holy Spirit onto the scene of Jewish history. The Holy Spirit had always been there, had always been active, but this was a unique anointing, a special outpouring that signified something very specific. Namely, the kingdom of God is now at hand. And this is a sign of the Messianic era predicted by the prophets. So the next question is this. Does the outpouring of the Spirit on the disciples, does it fulfill these promises? Because frankly, it's 2,000 years later, and the kingdom still has not come yet in its fullness. So how can we understand this passage in Acts 2 and these prophecies in in, in Joel 2 and Ezekiel 36 about the outpouring of the Spirit as evidence of the entering into the threshold of the Messianic era? Let Let me state this another way. Does the outpouring of the Spirit on the disciples really fulfill these prophecies as Peter claims in Acts 2? Has the Shekinah fully returned? Has the Spirit really been poured out on all flesh? 
For Joel says this is part of the great and awesome day of the Lord to come. Have we really reached the day when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh? Have we? No, not yet. Clearly not. Jeremiah 31, 14. The fullness of the new covenant is what? It was when they no longer would they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me, saith the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest. But we've not reached that point yet, have we? It's not yet true that everybody knows the Lord. So what was Peter referring to by quoting Joel 2 and the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord and saying it's now been fulfilled at Shavuot? And to answer this question, I want to refer to, to a, a midrash uh, that a friend of mine, Rabbi Daniel Lancaster, uh, has pointed out. I'm going to give him credit for this. And, and to look at the last portion of, uh, the last Torah portion in the book of Exodus, which is known as Parsha Pekudeh, the last Torah portion in Exodus. It opens with Exodus 38, 21. So in this last portion of the book of Exodus, uh, Parsha Pekudeh, Moses is completing the tabernacle, the Mishkan. And at the end of the parasha, the end of the book of Exodus, the dwelling presence of God, the Shekhinah, fills the tabernacle. So we read this at the end of Exodus, Exodus 40, verse 34. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the Mishkan, filled the tabernacle. And that's exactly what we're talking about here, about the return of the, of the divine presence, of the return of the Shekhinah. And this initial filling of the tabernacle corresponds to Ezekiel's later prophecy that we looked at about the glory of the Lord filling the house in the Messianic era. So Ezekiel prophetically depicts the culmination of the new covenant, when in the Messianic era, the Shekhinah, the dwelling presence of God, in the person of Yeshua, again takes up residence in Zion. And the dwelling presence of God is once again among men. So at the end of this Parsha Pekudeh, in the book of Exodus, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle, the Mishkan. But I want us to now look at the very beginning, the very first verse of this Torah portion, which is Exodus 38:21, And we read this. These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of testimony, as they were recorded at the command of Moses. And when you read this in the Hebrew, you notice immediately the repetition of the word tabernacle, or the word Mishkan in Hebrew. These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of testimony. In Hebrew, it's Ele Pekudei, Ha Mishkan, Mishkan, Ha Edut. So we see this word Mishkan doubled, Ha Mishkan, Mishkan, uh, which is the word for tabernacle. The word is, is Mishkan. The word Mishkan, it comes from the root, as I said before, Shekhan, Shekhan which means to dwell. Uh, and if you put the letter Mem in front of a Hebrew verb, it becomes a Hebrew noun, it becomes a noun. And they get the word mishkan. So shakan is to dwell, but the, a mem, they turns it into a noun. And the word is mishkan means a dwelling place. Mishkan is a dwelling place of God. Same, same root word for shekinah. Shekinah is what? God's dwelling presence or God's dwelling place. These are all the same Hebrew roots. And since the Torah doesn't uh, waste words, our sages are troubled here by the, by the repetition of the word mishkan in Exodus 38, 21. So the Midrash Tanchuma and Rashi, these two very well-known rabbinic sources, they look at this word Mishkan, and in the Torah, by the way, there's, there are no vowels, right? When you read the Torah, there's no vowels, uh, just the consonants. So um, they, they note, depending on the vowels you happen to insert, the exact same word can also be spelled Mashkon, Mashkon, 
which means a pledge or a guarantee or a down payment or earnest money or collateral. So depending on the context and the tradition handed down of how to read the Torah, uh, the word uh, that's doubled here in, he, in Exodus 38.21 could be read as mishkan, tabernacle, or mashkon, pl- pledge or collateral, because the exact same Hebrew letters in the exact same order are used uh, for both words. It's the same word in Hebrew, just different vowels. Now, the literal reading, of course, from the context is obviously mishkan, means the tabernacle. But our sages also see an interesting meaning in this alternate reading as well. And so here's what the Midrash Tahuma says. Again, I'm indebted here to Rabbi Daniel Lancaster for, for pointing this out. And it says this. Why does the Torah say Mishkan, Mishkan? Why does it say it twice? Because the Mishkan, the temple, was destined to be taken as a mashkon twice. The temple was destined to be taken as a pledge twice at the destruction of the first and the second temples. Therefore, it says Mishkan twice. So the sages, they see this word Mishkan, tabernacle. They note that in the Hebrew, it's the same word, same letters as the word Mashkon, pledge, down payment. And they see this as a prophetic intimation that the two temples will be collateral, if you will, for the sins of Israel. The temples will be taken from us until Israel repents and is restored to its former glory. Again, a mashkon is a down payment, a collateral against the full sum of the debt. So our sages see this as a sign that the Lord destroyed his temple twice instead of destroying us, instead of destroying the people of Israel. Just like a creditor seizes the collateral instead of seizing the debtor. In other words, the temple suffered on behalf of the sins of the nation as a substitutionary atonement, if you will. So our sages see God spared our people Israel and didn't destroy us for our sins by instead sacrificing the place of his divine dwelling, of his holy presence. So instead of judging the people for their sins, he sacrificially substituted his own place of divine dwelling presence, his temple, in their place so that they might live. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to realize to whom this is ultimately referring. Because Yeshua calls himself the temple of God. So John 2, verse 19. Yeshua answered them, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. They said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he's spoken of was his body. And of course, the ultimate substitutionary atonement to which this Midrash, consciously or not, point is pointing to is Yeshua's death and resurrection on our behalf. He was sacrificed. He suffered on our behalf. He lived the life that you should have lived, that I should have lived. And he died the death that we deserved to die. So that if we turn now from our sins... And we turn now from ourselves and we turn to him, to Yeshua, and commit our life to him, we are saved, we are redeemed. So we see, as this passage we just read in John 2, 19 points out, Yeshua and the temple are very much connected to each other on many, many levels. 
Indeed, one of the traditional signs of Messiah is that he'll restore the temple, which Yeshua indeed will do upon his return, his second coming, which ties back to this whole theme of the return of the Shekhinah. In the Messianic age, the Holy Spirit will once more fill the temple because Yeshua will rule and reign from there. Indeed, in the Midrash, this first reference to Mishkan in our passage refers to the destruction of the first temple in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, when the Lord took away the temple as a mashkon, as a pledge, in order to spare his people total destruction. Instead, we went into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. The temple was destroyed. The people of Israel live. And then, according to the Midrash, the second occurrence of the word mishkan in our verse uh, and then also in verse in Exodus 38, refers to the destruction of the second temple by the Romans in the year 70. And again, the Lord took the temple as a mashkon, a pledge, in order to spare his people from destruction by the Romans. The temple is destroyed, but Am Yisrael Chai, the people of Israel, live. And this very Jewish principle of substitution is obviously key for us as Messianic believers, as, as Yeshua followers. According to our sages, they themselves acknowledge that the Lord can sometimes substitute something on behalf of the nation's sins. And he sometimes, they admit, even substitutes a righteous, a righteous person, a single righteous person, for the whole nation. And we see this, uh, for example, in the Torah itself, in the book of Numbers, Numbers 35, where what happens, the death of the high priest enables all the people guilty of manslaughter to go free from the cities of refuge. The death of the high priest forgives the sins of the people. Uh, we see it symbolically in the Akedah, in the binding of Isaac, Genesis 22, uh, or the only beloved son of Abraham, uh, carrying his own cross, if you will, the wood on his back, uh, on, on the third day reaches Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. Book of Hebrews calls him a type of death of the Messiah. And our rabbis say that in Isaac's merits, our sins can be atoned for. We see it in the book of Ezekiel, with one man standing in the gap on behalf of the whole nation. And of course, it comes to its climax in the Hebrew Scriptures in Isaiah 53, with the suffering servant dying for the sins of the people, as a prophetic picture of Yeshua the Messiah to come. And our rabbis, they pick up on this, and they connected back to the destruction of the temple, where they say this, we'll put this on the overhead, this is a tract that Rosh Hashanah, they say the death of the righteous is on the same level as the burning of the house of God. Yeshua says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again, my body. One man, the God-man Yeshua, dying for the nation, uh, indeed for the whole world, and our rabbis admit that in their writings that the death of the righteous is more efficacious to atone for sin than all the sacrifices of the temple. In fact, there's a midrashic story in Shemot Rabbah where Moses in this story is talking to God. Uh, and God shows him the future destruction of the temples. Uh, and Moses asked the Lord, it puts on the overhead, Moses asked him, the Lord, what will Israel do without Mishkan or temple? And the Lord replies... I'll then take one of the, of the righteous of their righteous men and retain him as a mashkon, as a pledge on their behalf, in order that I may pardon all their sins. Do you hear this? The rabbinic writings acknowledge one man can die on behalf of the sins of the nation. 
I hope you're noticing this teaching fits hands and glove with the New Covenant Scriptures. And therefore, it can be a great witnessing tool to show our people the Jewishness of the gospel. Because the gospel reveals that God took the one perfectly righteous man, Yeshua, the Messiah, the living Mishkan, the living tabernacle, as a mashkon, as a substitute, on behalf of the nation, to pardon our sins. So how does this all tie back now to the Holy Spirit and Joel's prophecy that Peter quotes in Acts 2 on the day of Shavuot? Well, in a very similar way, we see the relationship in the New Testament between Yeshua as the Mishkan, as the tabernacle, tabernacling among us, uh, and the Holy Spirit, the Shekhinah, which God gave us as, as a mashkon, as a pledge, as a down payment on the Messianic age to come. When Yeshua is going to reign on earth, and the Shekhinah is going to return to the temple, and the Spirit of God is going to be poured out in his fullness on all flesh. So conceptually, we see the same wordplay with, with Mishkan, Mashkon, Shekhinah in both the Old and the New Testaments, in both the Hebrew Scriptures and the Apostolic Writings. And arguably, we see traces of this same Midrashic thought, interestingly, in Paul, in Paul's writings. Uh, it just shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because he was a great sage himself. He was steeped in Judaism. So, for example, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as a pledge. It's a mashkon in Hebrew, uh, given to us now against the fullness to come in the Messianic age. So when, when we, when you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit, when you and I walk in the Spirit and exhibit the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, what are we doing? We're demonstrating the down payment to the world, we're demonstrating it, of the future messianic age to come. Do you realize how important this is, you to be walking in the Spirit as a great witness of the messianic age to come? And, and secondly, Paul also pairs together the Holy Spirit in the temple and the tabernacle as well. So let's look at these, these two connections. First, the Spirit as a down payment. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.21. Now it's God who makes both of us stand firm in Messiah, Paul says. He anointed us, he set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. So God puts his seal on us, his stamp, as a mark of identity, namely his Holy Spirit. God gives all believers his Holy Spirit. How, what is a pledge? as a deposit, as a guarantee, in Hebrew, as a mashkon, of what's to come. Do you see the amazing connection between Paul and this midrash? Now, in Greek, uh, Paul, the word you, Paul uses here is the word uh, erabon, meaning an earnest money, or a pledge, or a deposit, or a guarantee, or a down payment. The King James says, God, the Lord has given us uh, the earnest, namely his spirit, in our hearts. The NASB says he gave us the Spirit in our hearts is a pledge. The NIV says the Spirit's given as a deposit, as a guarantee. All these words correspond to the Hebrew word mashkon. The idea here is that God gives believers the Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit, as a down payment on the fullness of the spiritual endowment and revelation of the glory of the coming Messianic age when the Hebrew prophecies will all come to pass uh, in their fullness of God putting His Spirit upon us and giving us hearts of flesh, and where you all know the Lord. And he'll pour out his spirit on all mankind. It's kind of like this. Kind of like there's an, an orphan whose parents have died, leaving him millions of dollars in trust. 
He can't have the money now until he reaches the age of majority. But the trustees allow him to have some of it now as a pledge of what's to come. We're not there yet. These prophetic promises have been partially fulfilled at the first coming of Messiah and the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, but they'll be totally fulfilled upon his return. We haven't yet entered into the Messianic age, but we have received a pledge, a down payment against it, guaranteeing that the rest is yet to come. The Holy Spirit is our mashkon, our pledge, our guarantee, our promise of what is to come. We see this again in Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4. Paul here is speaking about the resurrection of the dead. He says this, For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we don't wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what's mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who's fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who's given us his spirit as what? As a deposit, as a mashkon, guaranteeing what's to come. Notice the exact same language here. Again, Paul says that God gave us the spirit as a mashkon, as a pledge, as a guarantee, as a deposit. On what? On the very resurrection of the dead to come, on the resurrection itself. E.C., you have been filled with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your future resurrection from the dead. Hallelujah. Let's look at one more. Ephesians 1, verse 13. Paul says, And you also were included in Messiah when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance into the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So again, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee, the pledge, the down payment, the mashkon, on the inheritance, on the redemption of the Messianic age to come, when Yeshua returns and raises the dead and establishes his kingdom. So now, three times in Paul's epistles, we've seen the Holy Spirit, the Shekhinah, called the mashkon, called the pledge, the deposit, the down payment, the guarantee. And we see this wordplay, if you can look at the Hebrew that's behind the Greek, you'll see this wordplay. Well, Paul wrote in Greek, but he thought in Hebrew. He was a Jew. So now let's see the second aspect, where Paul pairs the Holy Spirit with the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know, you yourselves are God's temple, that God's Spirit dwells in you, in your midst? Notice the word dwells. He dwells in you. The same root as the word shekhan, to dwell. And mishkan, tabernacle, the dwelling place. And the word you hear, the word you're here in the Greek is in the plural. So what Paul is telling the Corinthians is that the Holy Spirit, Shekans, dwells within y'all, corporately. Notice how Paul is connecting the Mishkan, the tabernacle, or the temple, with the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. He connects the temple and the Holy Spirit together here. So in Hebrew, uh, you would say, you are the Mishkan of God, and the Shekhinah shall shall Shekhan in you, shall dwell in you. The Shekhinah is dwelling in you. Why? Because you're the Mishkan of God. You're God's temple. These are very Jewish concepts buried beneath the surface of, of, of the Greek in Paul. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. 
flee sexual immorality. All of the sins people commit outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. For don't you know your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, who you received from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. So we see again that the believers, the corporate body of, of, the, of Messiah, is the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the temple of the Shekhinah, of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 21. In Messiah, whose building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. is in Messiah. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his Spirit. So again, Paul's saying, we as the believers are the Mishkan, are the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, for the Shekinah. So we see both in the Tanakh and in the New Covenant Scriptures, uh, these three concepts, put that on the overhead, please, these three concepts of, of Shekinah, Mishkan, and Mashkon all joined together. Uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the Shekinah, Mishkan, the believers as the living temple, uh, and Mashkon is the gift of the Spirit as a pledge a pledge on the inheritance yet to come. These three concepts are in very close orbit with one another. Why? Because the apostles being Jews understood Yeshua as the living Mishkan, uh, the one who was taken away against the sins of the people, but then were given the Shekinah as a mashkon of the inheritance yet to come. Very similar concepts we saw in the Midrash that that we can now use to show our people the Jewishness of the gospel. Indeed, Yeshua himself says this, John 14, 16. I'll ask the Father. He'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, namely the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him. Why? For he dwells, he shakans within you and will with you and will be in you. Again, though, though Paul is writing in Greek, he's thinking in Hebrew. And the Hebrew verb to dwell, shekhan, from which we get mishkan, tabernacle, and shekhinah, the Holy Spirit, and mashkon, the pledge. All the same words in, words in Hebrew. Do you see how all these concepts are related both linguistically and theologically? And they all relate back to the Jewish theology articulated in this old midrash from Exodus 38 about substitutionary atonement about the one righteous man, Yeshua the Messiah, the righteous one, taken as a mashkon, as a pledge, against the sins of the people, instead of destroying the people. And then the Holy Spirit, the Shekhinah, being given, both to make us living mishkans, living temples, and as a mashkon, as a pledge, against the fullness of the Messianic kingdom to come. And so Peter now, back in Acts 2, quoting Joel 2, on the day of Shavuot, about the Spirit being poured out on all flesh, although the kingdom is not yet fully here, Peter is saying it's close. It's at hand. And to prove how close it is, God is, Peter says God now has given us his Spirit as a mashkon, if you will, as a pledge, as a deposit, with the Spirit being poured out on all believers in supernatural power, so that we can now be Yeshua's witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why? To usher in the day when the Messiah returns. And the Spirit is indeed poured out on all flesh everywhere. And we've even told this, Matthew 24, 14. 
For this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all goyim, all nations. And only then, after it's preached to all nations, will the end come. Acts 2.21. And then, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, who is this Lord? Acts 2.36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Yeshua, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. And they said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, i.e. for all the Gentiles as well, for all for whom the Lord will call. So Acts 2 shows us all these things were put on the overhead. Acts 2 shows shows us from a Hebraic perspective that the Holy Spirit is given, number one, as a seal of our salvation, Number two, to create the corporate body of Messiah, uh, the living Mishkan. Number three, to walk in supernatural gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit uh, as a mashkon, as a deposit, as a pledge of what's to come. Number four, the sign of the coming kingdom and its fullness. When the Shekinah is going to return to the temple from where Yeshua is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And the Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. And number five, as an empowerment for you, and for me, for us, to partner with the Lord in advancing his kingdom today by being his witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As Chaim, the Holy Spirit dwells with you and is in you. So be filled with his spirit. Be immersed in his spirit. Walk in his spirit. Be convicted by his spirit. Bear the fruits of the spirit. Be anointed with the supernatural gifts of the spirit. And bear witness to Yeshua in both your life and your testimony by the power of the spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. We ask the youth team to come on up for worship as well. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you today for this amazing gift of your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit. We thank you that by faith in Yeshua, your son, that you place your very presence, your very spirit, the spirit of Messiah within us to live and abide in us and empower us and to fill us and to transform us from the inside out. So, Lord, we repent today for sinning against you, for grieving your spirit, for quenching your spirit. We ask you now to fill and immerse, and yes, Lord, even drench us in your spirit, anew and afresh. Pour out your spirit, Lord. We want a new Pentecost, a new Shavuot experience in our midst. Revive us, Lord, for we need reviving. Fill us, Lord, for we need filling. Pour out your spirit, Yeshua, that we may prophesy, that our young people may see visions, that our older people may dream dreams. Even on all of us, Lord, your servants, pour out your spirit, that we may prophesy and heal and do miracles in your name. 
and all who call on your name, you, Lord, you promise, will be saved. So, Lord, today give us a new heart. Put a new spirit in us. Remove from us our heart of stone and, and give us a heart of flesh. And put your spirit in us. And move us to follow your decrees and to keep your laws. And finally, Lord, let our lives be changed by your spirit and characterized by the fruits of your spirit. Namely, Lord, uh, your love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against which you say there is no law. Help us, to, Lord, today to live by your Spirit, to walk in your Spirit, and to crucify our sin natures. For we pray this all in your name, Basham Yeshua, Amen.